I want to welcome those who are joining us this morning via the live stream. Many of our members and friends are doing that, so hello. Where is the worst place you have eaten? Don't answer out loud, but think about it. Where is the worst place you have ever eaten? Do you recall the location? Do you recall the ambiance? Do you recall the quality of the food? Many years ago now, one spring, four of us from this church went to Cape Cod to get in some early golf. Being travelers and tourists, we had no idea then what restaurants were good and which were not. This was before the days of online reviews. And at that time of the year, which was late March, uh, it's not always easy to find a restaurant, so the criteria may not even be which is good and which is not, but which is open. We found a restaurant that was open, and so we were excited about that. We pulled in and we walked in, and almost immediately there was a sense among the group that perhaps we have made an error in judgment. Have you ever walked into a restaurant and thought immediately, oh, I, yeah, this might not be for me. Well, intelligent people at that point turn around and walk out. So we sat down, and the waitress brought, that's a little loud, Tim, can you pull that? I don't know which one it is, it's ringing in my ear. Um, the waitress brought us our menus, and as you might expect out there on Cape Cod, a lot of seafood offerings. And so visions of its freshness danced in my head, I thought, I'm not sure if, if, if this is going to be good or not. There were other clues, of course, I should have cued you in on. One, there were plastic utensils on the table. Two, the place wasn't that clean. Most telling, it was dinner time and there were no locals there. If the locals don't go, probably you shouldn't go either. Anyway, we got our menus. We ordered our food. The food came and it wasn't ugly, but it was suspect. And I will never forget Dave Clawson's version of grace that evening. He, he bowed his head and he said, Dear Lord, help this food not to kill us. <laughs> As it turned out, Bob Maddox did end up with a touch of something the very next day. I'm not going to tell you what he ordered. He can tell you himself. Uh, but it did affect his golf game, as I recall. I think he was on my team. Um, and I do think that if it weren't for David's prayer and God's faithfulness, Bob Maddox might not even be alive today. <laughs> the worst place that you have ever eaten was bad. Would you want to eat there again? Would you want to eat there every day? Every meal? How about eating there forever? Our text for this morning talks about a bad dining place. What kind of rating do you suppose TripAdvisor would give to a banquet held in a cemetery? Well, for bread and water served in hell. If people would read such reviews, surely they would avoid those sorts of places, right? That's the hope, anyway, of a father trying to reach out to his son and, and, and tell him about the consequences, the importance of the his choices. And that's the hope of our Heavenly Father writing a letter to us and trying to teach us that who and what we choose to live for is absolutely a matter of eternal life or death. Let's pray. Father, we want to open ourselves up 
to what you have to say to us this morning. We come to sit under your word and no way want to be over it. So help us to be humble and receptive to what you might convince us of or convict us of this morning. We pray that anything that is said or intimated that's not of you would certainly be quickly forgotten. But that which is of you and that which reflects you and that which is truth might be received in the deepest parts of our being where it can where it can do the change that you want it to do. We ask and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So our Sunday services each week usually begin with a call to worship, and as we get into Proverbs chapter 9, we find a call to eat. A careful reading here uh, tells us that this chapter has invitations extended to two different banquets in two different venues. Seats are offered at two different tables where two different hosts are preparing two different meals which lead to two very different outcomes. The banquet is the primary imagery of the chapter, and the potential hosts are wisdom and folly. Now at times and on the surface, wisdom and folly can be hard to tell apart, right? It's hard to know sometimes the right thing to do in the moment. And so wisdom and foolishness can be a little bit confusing and sometimes hard to discern on the surface, but in essence, they have nothing in common. There's an old poem that says, East is east and west is west, and never the twain shall meet. That is the same with wisdom and folly. They are so dissimilar that they will never unite. They will never compromise. They will never come together. They are two entities, and they are the two options set forth in the book of Proverbs, the two paths from which all of us must choose. Both of these paths are vying for human allegiance. If we're going to take one, it means we have to forsake the other. We cannot choose to go down this path a little way, come back, go down that path a little way, come back, go down this path. That only ensures that we'll never get anywhere. We have to choose. And the writer of Proverbs clearly wants us all to see the superiority of wisdom, why we should choose the way of wisdom. If your Bibles aren't open already, feel free to turn to Proverbs chapter 9. We're going to start here in verse 1. But just to be forewarned, we're going to bounce back and forth now between uh, verses 1 and 6 and 13 and 18. I'll try to call them out as I go so you don't get completely lost. The woman wisdom. We see here that she's built her house, that she has hewn her seven pillars, that she has slaughtered her beasts. She's mixed her wine. She has also set her table. The first host we encounter is the woman wisdom. And from this brief description, we see that she is capable, she is industrious, she is generous, she is hospitable. She beckons from a solid home, from a house that she has built. It has seven pillars. In truth, nobody really knows what these seven pillars stand for. There's been a good deal of speculation. When you and I think of pillars, we probably think of some sprawling antebellum estate down in the south of our country. But some people think this actually is a reference more to a temple or to a shrine. Solomon's temple had two pillars. This woman's home or shrine has seven. Seven, as many of you would know, in the Bible is sort of that perfect number, the number that, that, that signifies completeness. Therefore, it could very well be that wisdom is inviting guests into her home, which is a place that lacks nothing, a place that is absolutely complete. Now, the fact that she slaughters her beasts here doesn't mean that she's a farmhand. It doesn't mean that she's just handy with a knife. 
This is an expression of generosity, of giving the best. Chapter 22 of his gospel, Matthew records the words of Jesus in the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were involved, invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. In Luke 15, when the prodigal son returns home, what does the father order be done with a fatted calf? It be slaughtered and it would be killed because there's going to be a party, because there's going to be a celebration. Both of these passages speak to the generosity of God. God who is willing to welcome undeserving sinners. God who not only opens his arms to undeserving sinners, but God who is willing to give those undeserving sinners his very best. That is his hospitality. That is his generosity. And that's what we're finding here in the woman wisdom in Proverbs 9. A feast is being prepared for any who are willing to attend. It's a celebration. Only the finest will do. Wisdom is not stingy. In fact, it's extravagant. The meat is served. The wine is waiting. The table is set. The woman wisdom, who personifies the righteous ways of God, intends fully to care for her guests. Now skip down, if you would, down the page to verse 13. Here we find a competing host. This is the woman folly. She happens to be throwing a party at the same time as woman wisdom. Attending both of these parties is not an option. You have to choose one or the other. What do we know about her? Well, we read the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and she knows nothing. What the ESV translates as loud, the King James Version calls clamorous, I believe. Do you have any KJV folks today? Anybody reading the King James? Going to confirm that. Clamorous. Well, clamorous isn't a word that we use every day now, is it? That's, that's like a crossword word. What, what does that mean? Well, it means boisterous. It means vociferous. And at this point, you're saying, that doesn't help either, because we don't use those words. It means rocks. It means loud. Literally, it means turbulent. So you get the sense of somebody who's kind of wound up, all right? Animated by passion. Now you're starting to think, I know who that is. That's my uncle. Well, that's the person who's at Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody wants to say, shut up. That's clamorous. That's what that means. One commentator speculates on the reason for Folly's loudness saying one gets the feeling that she has already been in her cups to fortify herself to holler her brazen invitation. In other words, she's been tailgating, drinking. Some people do, in fact, get argumentative or loud or more forward when they drink. But truly, that speculation is way more than the text affords. So to be safe, all we can really say is that that is a possibility, an option, what we really know is that folly is loud. That is, folly makes herself known. And she is seductive. That's also translated uh, in some versions as simple, which here means simple in a bad sense. That is, she is herself easily seduced, easily led astray, open to all forms of evil, that she lacks any moral fiber, that she has no desire whatsoever to resist temptation. Other versions of this same 
uh, text, and I encourage you when you read Proverbs to go ahead and read through a few other translations if you can. Call her gullible, undisciplined, and empty-headed. And finally, we read, she knows nothing. Oh, okay. That one is self-explanatory. Probably don't have to explain that too much to you. She knows nothing. This woman is willfully ignorant. Anything she thinks she knows, she doesn't. She's absolutely bankrupt when it comes to true knowledge. Her, her knowledge account was overdrawn long ago. There's nothing there. Now, like wisdom, folly also has a house. There's no indication that she's built it. There's no commentary on how sound it is. In fact, some would say that it's a house of ill repute and believe that the imagery that's being developed here in Proverbs 9 is that of a prostitute beckoning a young man in. In contrast to wisdom's work on behalf of her guests by setting a proper table, what does verse 14 say about folly? What does folly do? You have wisdom working hard, industrially, setting the table. You, you've got folly sitting down. And the impression, I think, that we're meant to get here is that wisdom prepares for her guests. Wisdom in, invites people and cares for them, but folly could apparently take or leave them. Whether they come or not, it's no big deal. Now, in some ways, that reflects the difference between God and Satan, doesn't it? God wants you at his table. God wants you in his family. God invites you in and prepares it for you and looks after you. But the devil, he doesn't really care about you. You do understand that, right? That he has a purpose. It is to kill and to steal and destroy. Anybody who thinks that Satan is for them doesn't understand the nature of Satan. Satan does not care about you. He just doesn't want you to worship God. And if he gets a chance, he's going to destroy your life. So if you come by, great. He'll come after you? Absolutely. But does he care? Not really. God cares. Satan doesn't. Wisdom offers the best meat, the mixed wine. And verse 17 shows us what folly has to offer. It's water. And not only is it water, it's stolen water. It's water that's been ripped off. It's not water that has been earned. It's not, it's not water that has, has been gotten through hard work. It's just stolen water and bread. I've got nothing against bread. You? Bread's nice. I like bread. I remember the first time Liz and I went out to an Italian restaurant, and they served. They came out with some little bowl of spices and put some olive oil in it and came out with this bread. <gasps> it was delightful. Since that time, we kind of hooked on bread, really. Bread ought to come as part of the meal, right? And, and with wisdom, bread does come as part of the main course. But with folly, look at this. Bread is the main course. So what do you get when you chase folly? You get the traditional, meager, prison fare. Bread and water. And folly calls out with all the volume of a carnival worker to entice you to spend your money on a rigged game. Look back at verse 3. We find out that wisdom isn't loud and, in fact, has a very different strategy for attracting guests. She sends her servants to broadcast her invitation. On this verse, theologian Adam Clark wrote, The wisdom of God has made use of the most proper means to communicate divine knowledge to the inhabitants of the earth. 
as a good and gracious creator wills to teach them whence they came, how they are supported, whither they are going, and for what end they are formed. Now that's old English, and I understand that can be a little bit hard to track with, so let me give, you, give it to you in newer English. God is good, and he wants you to know how you got here. And he wants you to know what you were made for. And he wants you to know what your purpose is in this life. He wants you to know why you're here. I'd like you to consider, my friends, how many emissaries God has sent to cross your path and teach you his truth. Wisdom sends. How many people has God sent to cross your path and teach you his truth? Many of those messages have gone unnoticed. Maybe it, there was a time in our life when we were deeply disappointed and we couldn't tolerate any talk of God or conceive of a God being good. Or maybe we were rashly rebellious and we had just decided beforehand, I don't care what you say, I'm going to go my own way and I'm going to do it my own way. But God nonetheless has sent you parents and grandparents Spouses, friends, pastors and preachers and Sunday school teachers. Wisdom sends out her servants. Because God is not passive or indifferent about the type of life that you live. And he implores you through his people to commit your ways to him. And to give your life fully to him. He is so eager to save you. God is so eager to have you that we know as Christians what those original hearers and readers of the Proverbs could not have known except through prophecy, we know personally that God is so eager to save that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, into this world. And he did that so that we might know who he is and how he is, what he's really like. And Jesus came to live that perfect life that you and I can't live, right? and to pay the price for our imperfection by giving his life on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Son of God was killed. He was buried. He was placed in a tomb from which he gloriously arose after three days. Having satisfied the penalty of sin, overcoming death, he has arisen forever, and like the woman wisdom, he extends an invitation to his heavenly home, to everlasting life, to a wedding feast like none you could ever imagine, to the celebration of God dwelling with man eternally. You see, God is not passive or indifferent as to the type of life that you should live. He implores you through his people. He implores you through his word. He implores you through his son to listen to Him, and to commit your life to Him. We look at verse 3 now, we see woman wisdom sending out young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. And if you read that, you might not be really impressed with the guest list. And you might just say, well, I don't know that this actually applies to me because when I look at that, I don't think of myself as simple and I don't think that I'm completely lacking in sense. I think I have a little bit of a handle on how things work in this world. So maybe this isn't for me. It actually kind of looks like um, 
almost an insult. That we would be embarrassed to be in that law. But let me tell you, and we'll talk about this next week in, in greater depth, this is not an insult. The invitees here are not um, mentally deficient, are, are not, uh, they are truly ignorant is what they are, or ignorance in the true sense. In other words, they don't know, right? They don't know, and they don't know what they don't know. And they're also impressionable. So here it, it helps us to remember that this is a father writing to a young son. And, and at least the young men in here will be able to say, there might have been a time in my life, maybe, where I didn't know something, but I thought I knew everything. Maybe. And there might have been a time in my life when I was so impressionable that I would follow here or there and do this or that to fit in or because I believed it was right or the good thing to do. Anybody want to confess to that? We don't have to. You don't have to because we know it's true. So keeping in mind that this is a father writing to a son, the invitees are not stupid. They are truly ignorant. They are lacking in understanding, which they need. And so wisdom is saying, come on in and, and I will provide it for you. The message is a paraphrase of the Bible. Some of you read that in the fourth verse. It describes these invitees, I think, in a, in a good way. It says, are you confused about life? You don't know what's going on. Come with me. Oh, come, have dinner with me. Are you confused about life? Do you not know what's going on? Then wisdom simply calls out, come, come on in. Let's sit down. Let's talk about this. Let's think this through together. Folly extends her welcome to the exact same characters, okay? The simple and those who are lacking in understanding. But do notice that she doesn't send anyone after them. I don't think she cares too much. Instead, she just sits and waits for whoever will pass by, kind of like a Venus flytrap waiting for an ant. She's looking to divert those who, in verse 15, we read, who are going straight on their way, which is sort of an allusion to us, I think, that sin and, and indulging in folly is almost always a detour. It's not God's straight way for us. We try to stay on the straight way, and sin entices us off the straight way. And, and sin does this with false advertising. Somehow, somebody should believe that stolen water is sweet. Somehow, somebody should believe that bread eaten behind closed doors in secret is better than bread eaten out in public. She touts the virtues of thievery and deception, and she tempts her guests to believe that these are good. Beloved, the lore of sin almost always contains promises of pleasure and benefits that are either outright lies or that cannot be sustained. Let me say that again. The lore of sin almost always contains promises of pleasure and benefits that are either outright lies or that cannot be sustained. The momentary thrill of doing something you know you're not supposed to do, for anyone with a conscience, for anyone who has a professed relationship with God, that moment of thrill, doing something you know you're not supposed to do, is always dampened by the long shadow of regret. Always. And that gnawing knowledge that your indiscretions 
have caused harm and hurt to the ones you love the most. So we note Folly's call in Proverbs 9 is deceptive, and it contains echoes of another infamous call, which you uh, might remember, one given in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent convinced Eve, who easily convinced Adam, he was a pushover, that it would be good for them to take and eat the fruit of the tree that was forbidden. And the result for them was the same as the result is today for anybody who would reject God to indulge in what God says not to indulge in. It is separation from God and death. That's where it ends up. Separation from God and death. And here is the final contrast for today between wisdom and folly. This is where these divergent paths lead. Wisdom leads to life and folly leads to death. The one who surrenders to folly, verse 18, does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So imagine if you would be invited to a home, invited to a party, and upon entering you discover that all the attendees are corpses. Oh, that's graphic. That's, that's kind of disgusting. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's the intent. You're supposed to be shocked by that. You're supposed to be a, a, a little offended by that. Imagine stepping into a restaurant. And I'm being very figurative here, so follow me if you can. Maybe even a restaurant that has good reviews written by bad people. Because, look, that's the enticement of sin, is it not? That somebody is saying, come and do this. This is great. This is awesome. You've got to have this. You've got to do this. You're going to love this. Good reviews by bad people. You step into that restaurant only to find that it is a deep and inescapable grave. Folly's invitation is to a banquet in the grave. Or as many translations have it, and worse yet, what follows the grave for the unbeliever the depths of hell. That's where folly lives. The depths of hell. And, and that is exactly why how we live and who we live for is truly, really, a matter of life and death. Not to be taken lightly. This is why, son or daughter, your irritating Christian parent is eager for you to be saved along with them. This is why your unfair Christian parent is trying to steer you away from harmful things always. This is why your overprotective, overbearing Christian parent is trying to keep you in church and trying to keep the message of God's truth in front of your face because she and he understands that daily you are barraged with lies and falsehoods and temptations and you need to know the truth in order to stand firm. This is why your nice but sometimes annoying Christian friend keeps talking about Jesus. This is why she keeps sharing her faith. This is why Jesus tells us that we are to be His witnesses, and that our job in this world is to go and make disciples. Because it's a matter of life and death. And when we go to make disciples, by the way, we are not canvassing the neighborhood and looking about to find people that we can criticize or condemn because they don't see things the way that we do. We are not knocking on doors and talking to people and saying, hey, you, you know what we're up to. We're trying to create a group of people that is completely alike. We want you to be just like us. Holy cow. We have our own issues. 
We do not want people to be just like us, do we? Oh, that would be dreadful. Because we're all works in progress. So the message that we send to people is not that we want you to be like us. It's that we're already alike. We are all, all, one and all sinners in need of a Savior. Every one of us is in the same boat. Every one of us is in the same predicament. And if there is no intervention, and if there is no salvation, every one of us is destined for hell. So if we could, by God's grace, pull someone from the path of falling, the book of James says we save a soul from death. It's exactly right. And the book of Jude is even more graphic. It talks about the believer's task that we are snatching people from the fire. That is why to be persistent, by the way, brothers and sisters, in your witnessing. That is why not to be put off by those who say, oh, you're offending, or I don't want to hear that. We have to tell them. I'm not saying be obnoxious, but we have to tell them the truth. Do you see now the urgency of this father writing to his son? To steer him in the way of wisdom. What parent doesn't want their child to walk in the way of wisdom? Christian parents today should have this exact same urgency running through their veins. That we are determined to raise our children in the Lord. In the nurture and the admonition of the Lord in wisdom's ways. Regardless of how, if we could do that, right? Regardless of how the world turns. And if you aren't thinking about how the world turns right now, where do you live? What are you reading? What are you looking at? Aren't we all thinking about that? Gracious sakes alive, it's a scary place at times. But see, regardless of how this world turns, the surest strategy to love our kids and do well by them and equip them for whatever should come is to be sure that they know the Lord. And that, in fact, is where to begin in the path that leads to eternal life, right? The, the, the name of this sermon, Wisdom, Folly, and Where to Begin. Hopefully, somebody's sitting out there going, where should I begin? I have an answer for you. The Bible does. Proverbs 1, verse 7. This is the preamble to Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then we look again in Chapter 9 and verse 10, we find this truth repeated. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And the word translated fear here doesn't mean terror. It doesn't mean alarm. It means reverence. As in the respect that we would afford one in whom we recognize superior, or in God's case, supreme qualities. When you come to know who God really is and how other he is, you bow in reverence and you submit yourself to him and, and, and you respect him for who he is. You see, wisdom and eternal life begins with reverence for God. That is when we bow our knee to the reality that he is indeed God and that we are not. That's a necessary corollary, isn't it? Okay, He is God, I am not. And then we choose daily to live as if that were true. Because it's easy to say, harder to do. It's easy to say, oh, I know that you're God, and then still wander off and attempt to be the sovereign over my own life. It is to acknowledge that he is God and I am not, and I am here for you. Lord, I want to follow you. The woman wisdom here, I'm sure you've picked up on it, 
represents God Himself. For all wisdom has its origin in God. And without God, one cannot have true wisdom. One cannot have true insight. One cannot have a real grasp on reality. So should we depart from God? Or should we choose in this world never to join Him? We will profess to be wise. We will do what we think is wise. We will receive, probably without critical thought, what we think are the best guesses of those who say that they are wise. Right? Isn't that what's kind of going on in our world today? There is a worldly wisdom out there that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Why should we ever allow lawlessness in our city streets? Why should we ever tolerate the violence that we're seeing? Why would we ever drop charges on criminals for whatever reason? What Somebody somewhere thinks that's wise. Now, before you think I'm getting all political on you, I'm not. Okay? I would, I would direct you to Romans chapter 1 if you want to know where this stuff comes from. That is the description of a depraved humanity. The, a, a humanity that has left the worship of the Creator and gone to worshiping the creature, which is essentially what we have done when we leave God out of the equation and begin to worship the best ideas of humanity, right? Are you following me? We've seen this and it ends badly. But Romans talks about it, and it says, what's going on? Minds are darkened. Thoughts and hearts become futile. Professing to be wise, the scripture says, they have become fools. The woman wisdom represents God and God's ways. And the woman folly represents, then, the enemy of your soul, the adversary the enticements of the adversary himself. And since it seems fairly obvious that the push of this text is to influence a young man to, to choose one above the other. I mean, Dad has done his best here to say, look, if you go here, this is how it ends up. If you go here, this is how it ends up. And he's done his best to say, over here, blessing, glory, health, well-being. Over here, suffering, struggling. Over here, life. Over here, death. He's done his best, and he's laid it out so that his son will make a choice. That's the push of chapter 9, right? And so the implication, then, of chapter 9 for us is that simple. All, all of this talking to get to this point is the same thing. Whom will you choose? Whom will you choose? Who have you chosen? Or, I'm sure you have figured this out by now, and this is key, who will you keep choosing? Because life in this world isn't about one choice that we made so long ago, and there aren't any others. We have to choose every day, don't we? And, and the choices that we make on a daily basis are going to reflect whether or not we're following wisdom or following folly. Sometimes those choices come hourly, sometimes more frequently than that. So we can't just rely on a choice that we made so many years ago when we maybe walked an aisle or raised a hand or made some sort of profession of faith. We must continue to choose the ways of God because we are constantly enticed and constantly tempted and constantly lured away from the straight path. Does that make sense? Does that, does that sound right? Does that sound like your life? It sounds like my life. 
And so the question is, will it be wisdom or folly that informs my life? Will it be wisdom or folly that guides my life? Well, we already know what Solomon is saying. Choose wisdom. If you choose wisdom, you're choosing God. Choose God. And the choice is yours. 